Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the next edition of Irish Illustrated Insider, brought to you by irishillustrated.com. I'm Pete Sampson with Tim O'Malley, two-man booth today. Uh, we've got plenty of news to get to. Uh, Tim, you were out at hoops practice. We want to talk a little bit about that. We've got some scheduling news, Arkansas coming on. I sat down with Jack Swarbrick actually this morning to talk quite a bit about scheduling, among other things. But before we get into that, um, you know, just sort of a, a human moment with the passing of Bob Elliott over the weekend is a guy that we got to know a little bit. Um, you know, we don't get to know the assistant coaches that well just based on we don't have a whole lot of interaction with them. But Bob Elliott always made you feel like you knew him, even if you really didn't. And that was, I think, pretty obvious on social media over the weekend after his, his passing in a long battle with uh, cancer, almost 20 years. Uh, there was not a situation where you felt like, well, only the safeties connected with him. You know, it was quarterbacks, linebackers, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, coaches. former assistant coaches, yeah. um, head coaches. Uh, his And his service is going to be, I believe the visitation is on Friday in Iowa and the, the funeral itself is on Saturday. I mean, that's probably going to be Brian Kelly, Bob Stoops, Bill Snyder, Dan McCartney. Um, I mean, that is, that is going to be a who's who really of, of Midwest football over 25, 30 years, I mean, it's really incredible to think how many people he, he really touched and affected. Yeah, just a great, a better person than coach. You see that written and talked about a lot, but he he clearly was. You know, you mentioned we don't get to talk to them very often. We probably talked to Bob Elliott nine or ten times total. But, every, I mean, by the time it was the second time, he was just, hey, you know, he knows your name. He sits down, he answers every question. I wrote about it on Monday. At one point, it was, it was probably 2013 spring, and end of the interviews and everybody's kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of leaving because the spring's over, the blue goal game's coming up and there's probably six or eight of us there and Jack was with me and he comes down the steps and you're thinking, you know, maybe he wants to get something over with. He, it's five o'clock at night. He can get on with his life. Just sits down and holds court, answers every question, 18 to 20 minutes. I mean, it, and it was just, he's a great guy to talk to about football. And he's a great guy to talk to about other things as well. And that's why players like Matthias Farley hold him so dearly. Farley tweeted out, you know, he changed my life. I remember one time interviewing Elliot in the preseason, um, and he said, you know, I told Matthias, who's one of my favorite kids on the team, you're fat. <laughs> this is what you need to do. And he made Matthias Farley into basically a four-year starter at Notre Dame. Yeah, and now an NFL an player. An NFL player. He did change his life. Yeah, I, just, I, I spent some time talking to Joe Schmidt, among other players, on Monday about uh, Bob Elliott and me. You know, Joe flew from basically San Francisco to Chicago. Matthias was in Europe on vacation, flew to Chicago. They met at O'Hare, rented a car, drove to Iowa just to spend really like three hours there with the family because uh, things had, had declined so quickly with, with Coach Elliott. And Joe said he was just so struck by, you know, you get there and it was like, oh, that's the... 
the Joe Schmidt and Matthias Farley of Iowa, and that's the Joe Schmidt and Matthias Farley of Kansas State, and that's the Joe Schmidt and Matthias Farley of Iowa State. And once you start to multiply the effect that Bob Elliott had on on coaches and players outside of just Notre Dame, where he was just five years in a 35-year career, it really gets mind-blowing to think how many people he really affected. But, uh, yeah, and it, it was – I think so often we – look at the impact a coach had on a player and only think about it in terms of Matthias Farley starter now in the league a little bit. Um, but it's, yeah, I talked to Buster Sheridan who was a walk-on who we never talked to. Uh, and, and Nikki Barati who, you know, didn't really have a career here at all due to, to injuries. And I mean, the impact that Bob Elliott had on those guys was, was just as much, but, we don't know it because they're not playing, so we're not writing about them. And, you know, Nicky Barati's talking to me about how, um, you know, he's crying in Bob Elliott's office before his senior year because he wanted to quit the team. He wasn't getting reps. Well, what's the point? And Elliott says, look, you've come this far. You're here for a reason. Like, don't quit now. And, you know, in the end, Barati sticks with it. Doesn't really play a whole lot, but, you know, he, he, talked about going out to dinner with Bob Elliott and his wife and inviting them to his wedding. And, you know, he couldn't make it, but he came to the engagement party instead. Mm -hmm. And like um, Bob Elliott was the quintessential coach that you wanted to come to your wedding. And like, there's Uh, there's plenty that you don't, there's plenty that you don't. I mean, I think college football is, is more corporate than it's ever been. And Bob Elliott's sort of old schoolness isn't, yelling and screaming and being tough, it's much more of a, a human touch that I think a lot of a lot of coaches just don't have anymore because they either feel like they don't have time for it or they make so much money they don't feel like they need to make time for it. And I think it's the I, well, you touch on it the latter. That's that's huge in that equation. And also he's the ultimate teacher because he cares. He cared about the player. It wasn't just trying to teach to get the point of the defense across. And, yeah. You know, he had some challenges to try to get the point of that defense across that he was in on at the tail end. So there's... Yeah. It's hard to understand that stuff. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was one of the things Schmidt said was just like, he was not going to BS you if he didn't have the answer for you right then. He would have the answer for you tomorrow. But um, he was so authentic with the players. I think they really appreciated that. And I thought that... You know, it came through talking to these guys, whether it be Anawalu and Schmidt or Barati and Sheridan. It certainly came through talking to, to Kerry Cooks and Tony Alford, both of, you know, Kerry Cooks said Bob Elliott, you know, he wasn't like a second dad to me. He was my dad because I never had a relationship with my dad. And, you know, Alford said, you know, there were things that they were on staff at Iowa State together, were things that Bob Elliott told him there that he still applies at Ohio State, and one of the things was like, if you yell about, if you're yelling all the time, what's really important? And Oliver's like, yeah, I still use that today. And he said, you know, the the impact of Bob Elliott. They were having a conversation about Bob Elliott, about Bob Elliott in the Ohio State staff meeting on Monday. You know, and not all those guys coached with him, right. a bunch of them don't even know him. But uh, there, are enough do that that stuff goes on, and you know, there's just a connection there and a, a respect that. Uh, is really unique, so it was cool to to do those interviews and all you know putting together a story. And for, it's fifteen hundred words now. I feel like it's going to go on to six thousand. You had another interview this morning. Yes, shifting gears and yeah. and, and talking about uh, hiring good teachers, right? Yeah, no, Jack Swarbrick. Yeah, no question. I, I sat down with Jack Swarbrick under the the premise I, I wanted to talk a lot about facilities and investment in the infrastructure of the football program, and we did do that. 
We also talked about Chip Long and Mike Elko. We talked about scheduling Shamrock Series, uh, going international. But um, you know, the point of it was, you know, I've been talking to Brian Kelly about, okay, what does Goog 2.0 need to look like? What do, what does the second indoor need to look like? You know, that, that was something we reported last September uh, that that was going to happen. Uh, there's no timeline for when it will happen, but instead of building another field parallel to the current Loftus. Actually, just going to enclose the third practice field at Labar, which is a grass field. Um, I don't know if they'll then swap out the grass to one of the other ones so right. they have an outdoor grass field or what. But uh, I think it's an interesting way to do it. It certainly makes it more football specific. And Sorbrook talked a lot about like their NCAA legislation with time demands now, where you, know, you can't start before six a.m. and there are evening cutoffs and breaks in the day that they felt like they need this. And if you've been inside the Loftus Center. It is like working out in a warehouse, um, not in a rustic, charming kind of way, <laughs> in a bad way. Uh, and I, I think certainly the aesthetics of this new field, whatever it is, uh, will be an improvement as well. It was rustic and charming when I was in college, but now it's just <laughs> dank and makes you feel like you wish you were doing something different. And that's no, it's, it's the only time covering covering the sport, you're just like, what? What is this? Yeah, you know, it's, it's not good. It's ridiculous, but it's that's that's. I mean, I can't. I never would have guessed. I don't think you would have either. That you're no. enclosing the third field to make an outdoor practice field or make it another indoor practice field. That's, yeah, I figured the, the woods north of the current field right. were were out. So forward thinking, it makes it easier. It yeah, has a massive of a project. You already have the space there to do it. Um, you know, we also talked about what needs to go in the Goog as it gets renovated. Um, Certainly, training table. These are like this is ridiculous yes, yeah. um, to have it served in the recruiting lounge. More recovery spaces. Um, unclear what the investment in the recovery technology will be in those spaces. You know, could but we talked about cold laser technology. Um, you know, it's not just twenty more ice baths. Um, they need to go above and beyond that, and then academic space uh, because and it, it has less to do with like. It's not so much that you couldn't go over to the library and do it, but they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we save a half hour a day? Because without question, and Brian Kelly said that, and plenty of people in the athletic department have told me this over the years, lack of sleep is their number one issue. So if you can create that half hour that then gets paid back in rest and recovery, um, that's the big bonus there. So that's, uh, instead of having set up in hallways and meeting rooms, and he also said just film study, the way that needs to be done differently than it is now so it it was curious to hear that the lessons of the last five years are less fixed space more flexible scalable space which is difficult to place when you build everything in brick yeah and bottom line just looking at your notes you also talked about a different type of investment they made in january or december last year in the head coach and we talked about it a little. We've talked about it since with all the hires. With especially, I think you could bring in a court. You could even bring in two coordinators. But when you overhaul a strength and conditioning staff with two coordinators and, and bring in a, a whole new position of a special teams coordinator, it's not a one year investment. And as yeah. you've already noted, it's a one year investment if they go four and eight again because you just can't come back from something like that. But it is, it is a long term thing, and it's good that it, I mean he's he's kind of said it. it it's. Brian yeah. Kelly is the guy that they need to win over the next three years. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think if, if they were going to dump the head coach, yeah. they would have done it in December or January of 2016-2017. Right. It's not happening this year, and I think we've 
we've touched on this podcast, like, okay, what's, what's the number? And it's kind of a crude question, but I wanted to ask yeah. it and just say, all right, I, you know, this is how it works in, in my profession. So I'm going to ask like the hot seat question, because I don't get the sense based on all the investments. And, and we had talked for a half hour at that point about infrastructure and recruiting coaches, uh, BK being a little bit different, more CEO, because he feels like that's, that's the, the biggest strength of his. And he feels like Sorbrook feels now more than at any point in the last eight years, BK has a position to actually act that way. Um, but I said, okay, it sure sounds like you're, this is a long-term thing. This is a two to, th- you know, this is a two to three year project, not a, oh, it didn't work out this year by, um, and it's, it's not, not that, Oh, to calamity that, doesn't, that, obviously, yeah. that ends. Nor is he going to come and say that it is a one-year project and everyone's job is on the line. That's just how college football works. But their perspective is much more, I think, BK 3.0 and see how this shakes out over 2017, 2018, 2019. Similarly to, I think, how you used to describe Brian Van Gorder, that it was a three-year project. It was never going to be more than a three-year right. project, but it was... Probably going to be a three-year project. Should have been a two-year project. Right was the key there, but it was. <laughs> we don't. We're not the decision makers on this thing. No. Obviously, so. um, but it. You know, we talked a little bit about how Brian Kelly's. I think most inspired hires have been guys that have not been in his coaching tree, and Sorbrick made the point that he feels one. He agrees with that premise, and that he stand and Sanford were successful enough that it paved the way for Long Elko Bayless to come in now. Four and eight probably need to happen for all for those wheels to be set in motion. But I said, I I my theory was that it showed quite a bit of confidence in yourself to then go outside your coaching comfort zone mm-hmm. in a make or break year on paper and make those hires. And Swarbrick's like, I agree with that. Like that that shows a level of confidence in that you're going to get this fixed. I do think he had to. And I also want to say that, you know, bringing when he comes in originally, Brian Kelly, you're bringing your own guys with you. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. That's because not the issue. your it's, guys it's, it's, won 33 games at Cincinnati. Exactly. That, but that's that's where the evaluate, offseason yeah. evaluation comes in. You're at a different level of football. And that's yeah. where probably quicker evaluation could have come into play. Yeah, no question. Uh, scheduling Arkansas on, I think it's 2020 and 2025. We talked a little bit about that. Um, said, you know, I, I don't know Notre Dame made a, a point of like, oh, it's a first-time opponent. And he's like, that's fine, but not really that big of a deal. Um, the bigger deal was Arkansas giving them flexibility to split the games by five years. That's fairly rare. Yeah, that's it. A- um, but that's what they needed. And also that they would like to have more SEC markers on their schedule in the same way that they always have two Pac-12 markers, ACC obviously, usually one Big Ten, and then the SEC maybe more than the Big 12, which I think, look, everyone here would agree that you're better off having a point of comparison to the, the league that's sometimes getting two teams in than the league that's sometimes getting no teams in. Um, so that's where they are with that. And it's different uh, to have a five-year marker with a team from the SEC than, say, Nevada, who they had a six-year marker with. Right. Late. So that's, well, no, and I, the 2020 gives it a chance to have Bill McKelly, too. That's a nice, he can kind of talk about it. 2025, Kelly has already talked about how he'll be uh, having a mind time. Yeah, Bill won't watching. be there either. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, they're in a situation now where Georgia, A&M, Arkansas, and like, I think mentally, I'm not in this place where, for some reason, I don't think of Arkansas and A&M as, a- as SEC teams, no. A&M for obvious reasons, Arkansas maybe less so, 
but Georgia, that is like heart of the SEC. Um, so they have that coming up. That that will be a huge uh, huge marker, as they like to say. And let's see what else have we got? Hoops. You were uh, watching hoops practice. It's odd in July. Right? Yes, it was... <laughs> I have a hard time with them in October. <laughs> no, that's it's harder in October. Yeah. Actually, this was this is a refreshing change. But yeah, it was open for it was going to be an hour. It went a little longer. There's a lot of heavy scrimmage near the end, which was fun. Um, actually, kind of one of the highlights was there was a there was a very competitive three on three part where I don't think you're supposed to score more than a couple times in a row. But Matt Farrell uh, transferred Jawan Durham and uh, Nikki Dojo. They're calling him Nikki, who. Uh, the three of them were lighting up, and as good as DJ Harvey looked, they were lighting up DJ Harvey, the freshman, John Mooney, who's you know one of the guys they really need to come along, um, and kind of a rotation for the third guy in there. And it was just showing Matt Farrell with the basketball in his hand. He controls this team. Um, but kind of the takeaways from, since Durham's not going to play, he's a different level athlete. It's going to be good to have him on the team next year. I know there's the silver line. Everybody's saying he's not fully healthy yet. I would like to see a almost healthy Durham with Bonzi Colson on this team. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen, but it really helps Notre Dame in the future. And kind of the takeaways I think fans would want to know, DJ Harvey just, he is, I've kind of been describing him from film as a swing man. He is definitely a small forward at this level, which is a good thing because they're bringing in guards. He's just, he's a little bigger than I gave him credit for. And he plays a little bit bigger. He, in three years. Builds are tight. He's, he's thicker. Okay. He's just thicker. Built. In three years, he'll, yeah, in three years he'll be able to kind of bang. Mm-hmm. A little bit down there, and then he—I mean—he has good explosiveness for for uh, for a young guy. But his his is just a learning curve. And like Bray mentioned, he just gets totally lost covering pick and rolls. They don't have to, and it's not just being the guy that's getting picked. It's like if you have to hug the shooter, but you still have to help out a little bit. Yeah. He has absolutely no idea. But he shows some flashes late offensively, and you know my two takeaways that matter for the rotation. <laughs> you're gonna immediately smile. I wish this was on camera. Martin Gebbin <laughs> okay. is bigger. He, he he's playing to his frame. Does that make sense? He's a 6'10", 250-pound guy who, when he comes over to help, looks 6'10", 250 pounds. So he's he's getting in the way of layups. He's altering a little bit you know, of, free, of free movement. He's, he's playing a, to his frame. He's available. Yes, he's available. He's like the fish. At a, yeah, at a he's on the menu. No, he is. He's playing to his frame. But yeah. And Rex Fluger was looking for his offense. I shouldn't just say a shot because I don't yeah. think Notre Dame fans want Rex Fluger to be hunting 20-footers all game long, even though he's a pretty good open shooter. He was just looking to contribute more offensively because they have to find... I'm not sure they need to find a third score, like everybody's asking, but they need to find a third score every night. It doesn't have to be the same guy. Bray mentioned Gibbs. It could be Fluger. It could be Gibbs. It's not Matt Ryan who transferred out. Um, uh, I think I saw on the board, they won't miss Matt Ryan, but they're going to miss his skill set. And I agree with that after watching practice. Yeah, it it doesn't seem like a great shooting team. Farrell's a great shooter, and then everybody else is not the shooting level of... Anywhere close to the shooting level of Matt Ryan, uh, Farrell, going back in time, all the guys they've always had there. VJ Beecham, I yeah, mean, when, when he's open and um, uh, yeah, and, not in his head, yeah, and on. It, it, they, I don't think they're a great shooting team, but I do think that they are going to be justified being but the fifth pick in the ACC preseason. They could, you know, there's a lot of good talent coming into that league. It's, they lost a lot of talent in that league, but talent always comes in. Yeah, but they do have one of the five best players and two of the ten best players in the league. Yeah, that will get you a long way in basketball. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll be very curious to see how that team develops because it's it's wired differently than a lot of Bray teams, even though it feels very Bray-esque in terms of, like, the 
three-star, four-year player in Farrell and Coulson. They just became much better than three- and two-star players in yeah. Farrell and Coulson. I mean, Farrell has no... There's no two-star left in Medford. No. He, he does not... And Bonzi Coulson, there was, a, there was a moment when... Actually, Coulson got a steal, and this is kind of a moment where I thought, boy, they'd love to have Durham in there. Mm-hmm. Durham hustles back, and Coulson didn't even challenge him one-on-one on the break. He pulled it out, took his time. Once his teammates joined him, he ended up backing down. I think it was Harvey and laying it in. And Ryan Ayers, is the head, their assistant coach right there on the sideline, just turns and said, freshman versus senior. And that's what Bonzi Coulson... Bonzi Coulson has a senior's game, mm-hmm. and... There was head for a few years. It is. He's had an old man's game, and now he's officially an old man. So yeah. he, he, he'll be able to score again. Yeah, quick, uh, before we get out of segment one, Dane Goodwin committed shooting guard at their third top 100 commitment. Um, they, I think, are tied tied for the lead on scout.com, at least, in terms of top 100 players committed with USC. Uh, and they have more top 100 players committed than the football program. So... <laughs> So riddle me that, Tim O'Malley. <laughs> I can't answer that one, but you, you've never, in the history of Scout.com, clicked on recruiting rankings that began in 2002 officially on a website and seen Notre Dame sitting at number five yeah. in basketball. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, this is, they have some momentum. You know, it's, I'm sure it's going to rejuvenate Mike Bray. Uh, he has, this is kind of the last ride of those Elite Eight guys. It's yeah. a new team after, once Colson and Farrell are gone, you're moving into the kind of the final stages, I would think. Uh, these are my. This is my four years. These are these are the guys I'm bringing in. Maybe the maybe last, the last run. stage of break. Really? No, that's what I was referring yeah, okay, to. Yeah. I think this would be his last stage. These these this freshman class kind of going through because it is turning the page. You'll have leftover guys, of course, mm-hmm. that have some culture, as he's always fond of saying. But the guys that made those runs, this is it. This is really the end of it. Not, but he's he. It's. I don't know if it's reloading counts with Notre Dame. It's re. <laughs> it's close. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's they they could be better in the next two years than they will be this year. And this is a year where they can challenge for the second weekend again. Yeah, I mean, it's like you throw, if they can skip the step in development crazy. with yeah. <laughs> Durham, Hobb, Gibbs, Harvey Harvey in there. I mean, that's a really athletic-looking group of guys. And then if you have you know the, the Goodwin-Carmody uh, group, right. if they can just shoot it, you know, like a, like a specialist's way, that's all you need to do to, to really fit in. And, and that, it'll be a very interesting team a year from now uh, once once Farrell and uh, Colson depart. So that's it for segment one, Irish Illustrated Insider. Got a bunch of questions for our readers, so we will get into all that next. Welcome back to segment two of Irish Illustrated Insider, burning up the boards. Our first question uh, goes across a few sports. Golden by name. In baseball, they have sabermetrics. In basketball, they also have advanced analytics. What do you see as a non-traditional stat in football that might be overlooked by the general audience but can be a key indicator of a team's performance? Yeah, I, I don't think there's ever going to be a OPS war in football. There's just too many variables, uh, and I think especially in college football, to take it a step further, there are variables on top of variables because of the opponents you're playing um, and just the wide range of that. But stats that I find interesting um, that maybe don't get talked a lot about, uh, I think run game efficiency is something I've been tracking the last couple years. And basically the premise of that is if you're a home run hitting running back, but you're getting stuffed on third and two, like that – counts the same um so it's to get 60 percent of the necessary yardage on first down 
I'm sorry, 40% on first, first down, down, 60% on second down, 100% on third down or fourth down. Uh, and that is, a, I think, a much more uh, true indicator of how your run game is going than yards per carry. Uh, and I think there's some stats that, like, I don't even know why that's, like, yards per carry is, I don't want to say a waste of a stat, but it's not indicative of what you're doing in the same way that um, I think, you know, total offense, total defense is based on the variance and pace of play. Well, and also... It's got to be... By, yard, yeah. If you're up by 35 points, the yards allowed are just right. totally useless. Um, to yeah. me, I'm much more yards per play. That's that's what I want to know. I want to know how efficient is your offense yards per play? How many? How much are you giving up yards per play? I actually saw a message board post years ago. Someone claimed that... And I never researched this. Someone claimed that if you average two yards more... Two yards is the benchmark. More than your opponent... For the season, that is all, the, the top level teams always average at least two more yards per play than their opponents do for the season. So let's say you average seven point three yards per play, you're holding your opponents to five five point three yards per play. I'd like to, you know, that the problem is you got to look at that for more than one team mm-hmm. for it to be relevant. But that goes to your point: how many yards per play are you getting and are you giving up? Um, not an easy one to track doing it that way. As I said, they're looking for the general audience as well. So I think, yeah. look, third down. Third down defense has always been kind of a telltale for me. Um, last year, Michigan was the best at it. They weren't the best team, but they were one of the best defenses. Other teams in the top ten include Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, who I think we all know had pretty good years last season. There's an outlier, and Oklahoma was kind of down in the 30s as the uh, as the other playoff team. But then you have teams like Wisconsin, Washington, Boston College that are known for their defense, and LSU, and that's third down efficiency. Look, Notre Dame was terrible at it. They were great. Um in 2012, of course. Um, I think if you're going to use red zone defense, you're looking at so many variables and outliers and freak mistakes that happen. That's probably not one that will carry over all the time. But mm-hmm. I, I think if you have a good third down defense, you're probably going to have a good defense. Getting off the field is the yeah. point. It's not like you're giving up touchdowns left and right on second down. So yeah. the third down defense is one. And the one we use on uh, for an individual player, um, it's probably why I was so high on Isaac Rochelle, the junior, is Stuffs. Tackles near the line of scrimmage, and it does not count if if it's second and three, and the guy gains two yards. I don't record it as a stuff. You didn't really do your. It's a, it's it, the inverse of rushing run game efficiency. Exactly. That that's not. But if it's you know third and three, and you gain make a tackle for a two yard gain, and same thing. It's, a, it's but if it's in opposing territory, that's great because they're going to punt. Yeah. So that yeah, stuffs is a thing because that year uh, you know Isaac Rochelle uh, actually had more than than Sheldon Day when the two were on the team and. Uh, Together, but I'm sure Sheldon Day helped him out with that one. So, yeah. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> stats are tough in football. You said there's so many variables, like Sheldon Day drawing a double team, Isaac Rochelle against the stuff. So there's, uh, I would, I would say if you're looking for a team stat, yards per play and yards per play against the measure over the course mm-hmm. of time will hold, will work out for you. All right, ND six one five on the heels of the Arkansas series announcement. What two to three non ACC schools would you like to see Notre Dame schedule most? For home and home, feel free to be selfish with your answers. Does that mean like Pepperdine to be selfish? Because yeah. that would be a fun trip. But I would say, I've never been to Oregon, so I'd love to go. I've been to the state. I've never been to outside. I didn't write that one Yeah, down. I'd love to have a home and home with Oregon. Um, be a rough night game on the road for, for the team in the blue and gold, probably. But it'd be fun to cover. Uh, for a place I've been and would love to go back, I've been a couple times. Is Tennessee has always just been a great, all-time great game day atmosphere for me. Um, and I had never, actually did not make the trip out to Washington. I was on my honeymoon. So I would love to see that stadium 
And uh, especially now that it's been renovated, yeah, especially now. But uh, that would be another one for me. Yeah, I was going through. Uh, I think I've covered fifty-two road games, not neutral, so like road. Oh, venues. road, road venues, road venues, stuff. and I've been. All of one of those was an SEC team, Tennessee, in 2003. Yes. That was the last one. So I was partial to Alabama, LSU, Florida. I would love to see what those environments were like. I have never been to Ohio State, even though I feel like Notre Dame is playing Ohio State a lot. It's not actually the case. Um, but I think also, you know, this is not really a marquee game, but I would love to see Notre Dame do a, a true home-and-home with Navy and a true home-and-home with Army. The Army would be great. I think that would just be incredible yeah. uh, and a cool statement on top of it. I lived in the South for 10 years, so I have gone to those places not to see a Notre Dame game, but I will tell you that this will be a quick podcast tangent. Florida, Spurrier's there. They were playing Mississippi State. It's a 2000 or 2001. Whatever happened the year before they lost to Mississippi State. And they are winning 45 nothing in their revenge match. And there's two minutes left, and no one has left. And Mississippi State is going for it on fourth and one at midfield, and you can't hear yourself think at 45 nothing. <laughs> they stop them, and then to make the story the story, Brock Berlin, the freshman, comes in as the backup quarterback to kneel the ball out. Only he does a play-action pass bomb touchdown to win 52-45. to And Spurrier says it's because they ran over our trainer in the celebration last year. That's for him. So that's what you might get in Florida sometime in your life. Good times. That would be fun to see. That would be fun to see. MMB4. What should we expect from Brandon Wilbush this year? New quarterback play or star in the making type of year? Because it said star in the making, I'm kind of on that. I don't think he's going to be a top five college football quarterback this year. But I do think it will be... Star in the making, you can see how good he is. I know that there's going to be some mistakes. I don't necessarily believe that he has to throw 10 interceptions like it seems to be the, the popular sentiment right now because he's a rookie. He's a junior rookie that's got a lot of talent around him. And a lot, can I use arm talent? Am I a, am I yeah, a former sure. coach or scout? Like but I'm going to say arm talent and leg talent. Uh, oh, I, leg, I, yeah, leg talent. talent. He has leg talent. He can make all the runs. That's right. He can make all the runs with his ankles. So, yeah, I think he's a star in the making. It won't be the best year of his career, but there's a reason. He, I guess there's two reasons he's listed on the Heisman Watch on uh, sportsbook.com. One's he goes to Notre Dame. And number two is he's actually a pretty good talent yeah. quarterback coming in. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, this still goes back. I think the principle applies even if the statistic is not exactly true, is that Brian Kelly, I think he's 21-5. and five. With a freshman or redshirt freshman quarterback, I realize that Wimbush is a junior or redshirt sophomore, no matter how you want to spin that. But he hasn't played really any meaningful football no. and hasn't been on the field in two years. So I think that's that's a reason to believe that the offense will be very good and Brandon Wimbush will be a part of the reason it's really good, even if he's not the reason that it's really good. How surprised would you be if he is the problem? How surprised would I be if Brandon Wimbush is a problem of Notre Dame offensively? Pretty surprised. I would be too. Pretty surprised. That, that's, that's the way I look at it. I don't think he's holding them back. I have. I don't mean the Georgia game when it's third and eight and it's middle of the third quarter. I'm not saying he's going to be all. He's going to be prepared for that. But I mm-hmm. think over the course of the season, I think if he struggles against either Georgia or his first road game, that he's much better against USC in his next road game. Is kind of how I look at it. I'll, yeah, this is an O'Malley type of question, but <laughs> give me your level of concern among speed at the wide receiver position, the right tackle, and the quarterback. I'm 
uh, one to five, one being the lowest, one at quarterback. I don't okay. believe there's a problem. All right. I, two, because it's humanly possible. How's that? Yeah. Oh, one, yeah. Um, no, but most biggest concern to least concern among those three things. The right tackle. Oh, he's number one. S- speed of wide receiver, because I do think Kevin Stefferson will be in the mix. Mm-hmm. And then, there's, I don't, I'm not, yeah. Wimbush wouldn't be three. got to find me a few more things for me to, before okay. I go with Wimbush. So that's, right. I go that way. I think right tackle... I think you play some good defenses this year, and you have a redshirt freshman in there. I think without Stefferson, I would bump that up. Okay, I'm. I, but I think he'll be in the mix. Point being, Wimbush is three. Yes, yeah, he's. There's no. I don't have real concern over Wimbush. Yeah. I have him as not the strength of the team, but I think he will be one of the top ten players on the team. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Irish Grizz fifty three. Is there much hope for Trombetti and Kareem allowing Jay Hayes to help out of the three technique defensive tackle? I feel like he needs to be able to log some Rochelle-type snaps in case Ewell, Hinnish, or Tegapailoa Mosa play like 18-year-old Lyman, which is very fair. Or does Jay Hayes even have that ability in him? Uh, I think Jay... I think if the question is Jay Hayes needs to log Isaac Rochelle snaps... Inside. I, they want him to move oh, inside. Okay. Which opposed will, to the volume of snaps, right. which is often 100% of them. <laughs> yeah, um, he can't have that many. He yeah. can't do real Rochelle snaps, which is... He played more snaps than were in a game you once tracked. You know, it's, it's a, yeah. <laughs> he really did. Yeah. That's true. True story. Um, I think Jay's inside is a very interesting dynamic, um, but I don't think the solution would be Trumbetti or Kareem. I think it would be Julian Aquara had an amazing offseason out of nowhere, and they get Dalen Hayes and Julian Aquara on the field at the same time with uh, Jay Hayes moving inside with Tillery. So, let's say you get in a situation where it's third and whatever, and you go Hayes, Hayes, Tillery, Aquara. That suddenly looks like a fairly athletic, somewhat young, but athletic defensive line um, that could actually get some pressure. I don't, I don't know where Trombetti and Kareem fit into that mix, but um, I like the idea of Jay Hayes moving inside on third down. That's not a solution on first and right, ten. Right. He has to be the strong side defensive end. I completely agree. I think you could see it on third down. I'm, I'm not sure why not, yeah. unless Bonner, if unless Bonner shows that ability to get to the passer, but he, I don't think he would better than Jay Hayes from no. the inside position. And, I, and Bonner needs rest if he's the starting starting three technique, which he is set for yeah. right now. Yeah, you know, Kareem, we just haven't heard enough about from the coaches to think he could step in right now. That doesn't mean his. I'm not talking about his career, but. Have you heard him? No, and it's not, and it's not even somebody that you hear about behind the scenes right. either. You know, it's not even the, the chatter guy of like, oh, this guy's having a really yeah. good off season. So it makes you wonder if he's like, maybe he's six months away, maybe he's a year away. Maybe um, he should redshirt him. Yeah, but he's look, they're Trombetti and Hayes. Trombetti's definitely gone. Hayes, you would hope would be back, but Khalid Kareem still has. <laughs> take this year out. He's still got two years where he has to play a big role. Yeah, and I, you know, I mentioned that he should have redshirted. There's the theory that he did. We can't get to the bottom of this because I think it's kind of like it's going to be a thing where they're going to have to apply because he mm. played in games. And there's that. Yeah, I mean, he's listed on UAD.com as playing like six games, but that didn't happen. So that's that's just a, a mistake listing. But I'm not clear. I, I have put the official question in. It's just not clear yet. But for people listening, he may actually have a fifth year of eligibility. I just can't prove it, and I don't think you'll be able to until 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned. PD Halls. Where's the disconnect between the talent and results in regards to the defense? It's easy to say that Notre Dame needs to recruit more talent on the defensive line, but in reality, 
safety aside, if you started some combo of Tillery, Jay Hayes, Daniel Cage, Dalen Hayes, Sean Crawford, Nick Watkins, Asmar Bilal, Drew Tranquil, Niles Morgan, Dante Vaughn, Khalid Kareem, Elijah Taylor, Greer Martini, those were all four-star guys on scout with Morgan being a five-star. How many teams in the country could start a four-star player at almost every position? I'm just glad that Jay Hayes and Khalid Kramer in two questions back-to-back yeah. back <laughs> in July, which means we have done our job talking about concerns and strengths on the team. Yeah, I, I actually wrote about this on, on Monday. If you look at it, the average star ranking on the offense is four. That is the starting 11 plus the backup at every position. And the average star rating on the defense is 3.75. That includes one five-star in Morgan. A little handful of three-stars, um, and they are all in the secondary. One of them, I think, has outperformed that already in Julian Love. And then there are a few question marks. Uh, they have enough star-ranking talent to have a defense better than we are painting it. Um, but I think it's interconnected in that their issues are pass rush and young safeties. Yeah. If their issues were something else and something else, we wouldn't be lamenting the defensive setup for the at least the beginning of the season. Because there, there's just... There's not a pass rusher unless it's Dalen Hayes, or unless you said someone comes out of nowhere like Aquara, mm-hmm. and they're young at safety and inexperienced. And I mean, Nick Coleman and Jalen Elliott are set to start at safety, and Nick Coleman's the sixth best corner, and Elliott was playing offense two years ago. Yeah, on top of that, uh, if you ask around Notre Dame about Lohi Gilman, they'll tell you, hey, it might be the best safety on the team, which is okay. Uh, Glad he's on the team. But... <laughs> a, a Navy transfer who was uh, sort of all-American conference would be... Your best safety. That's that's not a healthy position to be in. I, I agree. It's just they they are weak at the wrong spots. Uh, you know, if if we were talking about Notre Dame has a real weakness at nickelback and will linebacker, I don't think we would have much of a concern. Um, or even to forget nickel, just starting corner. Yeah. Um, they're just they're unproven and I think under talented a lot of positions. Now to answer the question, how many teams in the country could start a four-star player at almost every position? Well, some of these guys aren't starting that are have been listed here. Um, so Notre Dame's not going to start a four-star at every position because Julian Love is going to start and Jalen Elliott was a three-star prospect. Uh, you know whether it's Devin Studsell, Nick, Nick Coleman, Coleman three-star those star are three-star prospects. Yeah, yeah. They're starting. Um, Bonner's probably going to start. So. Notre Dame won't start a four-star player every position. Almost every team in the top 25, well, in the top 15, top 15. could. But that's not really the point. You know, it's, the point is how many, how many difference makers on the college level do you see in all the names you listed? So far, we've seen zero. I think that Dalen Hayes will be one. Sean Crawford could be one. Crawford, when healthy, is one. Niles Morgan will be one. Niles Morgan, yeah, Niles Morgan would be the yeah. closest. Tranquil, I think, will be one in this defense specifically. You've heard nothing, but we just in case people have been listening the whole time of the summer, you've heard nothing but great things about Drew Tranquil at this position in the defense from inside the Goog. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And not on the record, so that's that's even yeah. better. All of, yeah. All American <laughs> NFL is like that's they have huge expectations for him, um, and I think. Tillery, if he bounces back and gets his head on straight, has a chance to be very good too. But I'm going to sigh for Priester not being here yeah. right now and just put something. Here. Yeah, Tim would like to put <laughs> in absentia Priester's protesting my Tillery comment. Um, but they like they have some guys on defense, but they don't have studs on defense that are really going to, I think, move the needle. And that's a, 
that's what Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson, they have a ton of the guys like that. So that's the position they're in. All right, last word. Tennessee Al. Any word on the incoming freshmen and how they're doing in summer workouts? You had a large thread on this, and I, I think did. The, the, main, the main takeaway for me was Heinisch and having, well, that Tagovailo, Amosa, and Heinisch looked very good, and that Ewell did not. I think that's the opposite of what we have been kind of talking about since Ewell took up swimming and was our number one across the board uh, incoming recruit by Irish Illustrated. So why don't you elaborate yeah, on well, the issue? Yeah, like... <laughs> Shockingly, the media thought a four-star player was better than two three-star players. Um, but yeah, what I had heard was that stock way up on Tagovailoa. Most of they're very impressed with him. Um, Heinish, they sort of love everything about. I don't know if he's a super high ceiling guy, but uh, you know the the Irish A to Z in me is like, who do we compare these two uh, guys that they look like? So you're going to compare him to Pat Coots, and I was told, look, he's way better than that. Um, and Pat Coons was a productive player. Kurt Heinisch, I think, is going to be a productive player earlier than that. Maybe even earlier than Darnell Ewell, which was a bit surprising to me because I think we all expected him to fight for reps early on. And it sounds like Heinisch, if if Temple was tomorrow, Heinisch maybe would get on the field and, and Ewell wouldn't. Um, so that's when you look at Notre Dame's defensive line depth. It's great that Tagovailoa Amosa... And Heinish are really impressing, but it's a concern that Ewell is not. The other one is Cole Komet is just looks amazing. And uh, I think we could have told you that after watching him. I think it was at was it a spring it was spring it was practice. The last spring practice. Yeah, it was right? out at Labar. Yeah. Um and he looks like a college junior. Uh, between him and Brock Wright. I mean, they're set for three years minimum, and like and I think you got, yeah, I think yeah, I think you got to set it at three years because maybe one of them's going to go pro after the junior year. I mean, they there's man, there's just a lot of material in those two guys. Hey, you play them, you know, they always redshirt one of those tight ends. The situation, but if they're that good, you play them both if they can help you because there's no fifth year for a tight end that's that good anymore. Yes, that's. You didn't get the fifth year out now. I shouldn't even say the name Tyler Eifert, but you don't get the fifth year out of Eifert. You don't get the fifth year out of Pisano. He didn't get a fourth year out of Rudolph. He's a different. He was an NFL player when he stepped on campus. That didn't was a get a little, fourth year out of Nicholas. Didn't get a fourth year out of Nicholas, which is worse than not getting yeah. a fourth year out of Rudolph because he didn't see that yeah. coming. Um, you know, they didn't redshirt Koyak, and they could have. Could he have returned? Yeah, yeah, he probably could have too. And Smythe, of course, needed it. But at Mac, you're not going to get a fifth year out of. Him. I mean, he might not get a fourth. Right. But yeah, play them if they can help. Right. Yeah, because I don't think either of those guys are, are five year players here, but. Um... If they're if they are truly committed to being a more of a uh, two tight end type offense, there's going to be a huge role for those guys. And throw in uh, Michael Young and Jordan Gemar Keith; those are two other guys that were mentioned to me as like stock up. They like what they have for Gemar Keith. I thought that was really significant, yeah. just because he hasn't played a lot of football, and he's a guy that maybe is also sort of in between positions as a bigger body safety type. But Do they like him as an athlete or at a I'm not really sure. I think that they just like what they see early on. They're not, you know, installing the defense top to bottom uh, in June. But um, in terms of a guy and his fit, I think that they they like what they see there, and that to me is it's good news um, because not not everyone comes in ready to go. How about Vernaglia? How's he looked in the summer? Yeah, as always, <laughs> million bucks, <laughs> million bucks. There's always a guy that looks great every summer. So let's. <laughs> yeah, there's. there's <laughs> and I, I, I hopefully people are not listening to this podcast and saying like, 
My takeaway was that Kurt Heinisch will be a freshman All-American. <laughs> no, I think it's Kurt Heinisch could be a factor in a rotation this year. Um, and the same with Genmar Keith. I think the only guy that you could, after listening to this podcast, would be reasonable to think, wow, he's very impressive, is Cole Komet. Uh, and that's, I'm just talking the mid-year enrollees, not the early enrollees, because I think we know what they've seen. And that that was another guy I talked to uh, somebody around the offensive line, we'll say, about Robert Hainsey. And he's like, I said, he was really impressive to me. What do, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, don't be surprised if he plays this year. I'm like, this year? And he said, yeah, I think you'll see him in a competition at right tackle with Eichenberg and Kramer, maybe for time this year. So... Hainsey is another guy, even though he's an early enrollee, not to be overlooked because they are incredibly high in the sky out of the gate. So it'll be fairly interesting to, to see how that unfolds. All right, well, that's it for Irish Illustrated Insider. We're going to end on that upbeat note. Uh, I think we'll be back next week, hopefully, with Three Tim. rookie right tackles yeah. as upbeat as we yeah. get, right? Yeah, no, two weeks down the road maybe with Tim Priester, uh, full booth at that point. So until our next podcast, you've been listening to another edition of Irish Illustrated Insider. He is Tim O'Malley. I'm Pete Sampson. Thanks for listening.